Father, again, we thank you for your presence just now. And uh, we'd ask that as we consider this tabernacle in the wilderness, that you would make this relevant and meaningful for us today. Amen. Well, I guess the question is, is this really relevant? I remember as a kid several times being motivated. I'm going to read through the Bible, and it always seemed like Leviticus was where it ended because it just kind of uh, wasn't too interesting, kind of uh, lost steam. Well, I think if we take the Bible as a whole, this is actually some very interesting uh, material here. Is this relevant? Well, it runs through the entire Bible. For example, I know many of you here are familiar with this verse. In Daniel 8, 14, after 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Well, if we're going to talk about the cleansing of the sanctuary, okay, that's all the, the subject of Leviticus chapter 16, the cleansing of the sanctuary. It would make sense to go back and discuss what really happened back in uh, those wilderness years. We talk about uh, the sacrificial system. Of course, was not the death of Jesus the culmination of the sacrificial system? It ended at that point. Okay, do we gain meaningful insights into why Jesus had to die? Important questions like this uh, when we look back at the sacrificial system. Okay, I think we do. And it runs through the whole rest of the New Testament. Okay, Paul would talk about this again and again and again here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who is given to you by God? Many, many references uh, to the temple and this whole concept that we are the temple, or sometimes you all are the temple. What does that mean? Then we have a whole book in the uh, New Testament here, the book of Hebrews, which is just uh, redundant on uh, kind of interpreting some of these things from the sacrificial system. Okay, would seem to make it relevant. And then we get into the book of Revelation. And we get into Revelation chapter 1, and there's a description of Jesus, and what is he doing? He's walking through the holy place among the lampstands. And uh, it's really quite interesting when you go through the book of Revelation and just look for all of the references to the sanctuary system and some of the, some of the symbolism involved here. So it would seem like, uh, you know, this is, it's pretty practical to go back, to look at the instructions here for the tabernacle, and uh, to try to make some applications for us today. So what was the purpose? Can we ask maybe what was the purpose at that time? What would it mean to you? Uh, here's the tabernacle. Um, what were they supposed to take away from it? Well, uh, end of Exodus. There are a couple of interesting verses on this where God would seem to uh, make this pretty plain. He would say, the people must make a sacred tent for me. Okay, what's the purpose? So that I may live among them. Okay, this seemed to be a way of God coming close, tabernacling, tabernacling with the people. And in Exodus 29, for all time to come, this burnt offering is to be offered in my presence, at the entrance of the tent of my presence. That is where I will meet my people and speak to you. There I will meet the people of Israel, and the dazzling light of my presence will make the place holy. I will live among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt, so that I could live among them. I am the Lord your God. So, it would seem that this was God wanting to come closer, wanting to be right there with the people. Okay, that would at least be part of the meeting. What's interesting, we talk about God coming in human form. John 1 opens up the Word, who was God, He came. And in John 1.14, when we read this description, the Word became human and made His home among us. What that really says is, 
he tabernacled, came to tabernacle with us. We look up that word in King James, he dwelt among us, means to tent or encamp, to tabernacle, just like he did in the Old Testament. So we have God in the Old Testament tabernacling with his people through this tent, and then we have him coming in human form, again, coming even closer. Okay, and the Bible ends with, it would seem, God coming yet even closer. I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne. Now God's home is with people. He will live with them, and they shall be his people. And I find it um, meaningful that in this setting, a few verses later, that I saw no temple in the city. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Okay? Isn't that the ultimate? I mean, we are right there in the presence of God. So the Bible really tells the story of God coming closer and closer and closer. Well, last time, or I guess it was two weeks ago, we talked about God coming and uh, Moses asked, can I see your glory? Can I see the dazzling light of your presence? And then we have this wonderful description. Instead of the picture of what God looks like, we have a description of his character. And then we have the promise to punish to the third and fourth generation. And we discussed how we're always contrasting here between uh, these two sides. Okay, and our question from that time was, well, is this an imposed penalty by God or is this a natural consequence of being separated and rejected from God? Well, the tabernacle in the wilderness, you also very much get that other side. Here's the other reminder of the sacrificial system. And I like how it's put together in Hebrews where Paul would say, if he wrote Hebrews, assuming he did, as it is, however, the sacrifices serve year after year to remind people of their sins. And some of you might remember, we considered here the sacrificial system. Imagine you're Adam, and uh, everything just seems to have gone wrong, and here you have to kill a lamb. And assuming they didn't have sharp swords and things like that, how do you kill a lamb? Uh, beat its head with a rock? I mean, it's just horrible, disgusting. Okay, and I think that's part of the lesson. Uh, sin has a horrible, disgusting uh, outcome and consequence that naturally leads to death. So we see this other side of the coin here in the sacrificial system. So what are we to make of all this? And um, as we consider the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place, today we'll probably only get through the holy place, um, even though I think the most holy place is probably the most interesting uh, subject here. But I guess could I just ask a question and have you think about where would you like to be? in the tabernacle? Uh, do you want to be as far away from the presence of God, shielded by as many veils and things as possible? Or are we supposed to be right in there, uh, in the most holy place? And what, what I'm going to try to describe is, I think this is supposed to show us the way to God, and the way that God, the means that he has used to bring us right there into his very presence. <clears throat> I'll only read one verse. Um, uh, here are all the others. We've read them before. Okay, it'd be worthwhile to read all of these, but the one here in Psalms is just representative. Uh, we need to be very careful as we talk about the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of the animals, that we not get into an appeasement model. Remember, that's the hallmark of paganism. The gods are always angry, need to be appeased by much flowing blood. Okay, and so in Psalm 51, and remarkably, this, these are the words right after David committed adultery, had Uriah killed, Okay, and these remarkable words. You do not want sacrifices, or I would offer them. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. My sacrifice is a humble spirit, O God. You will not reject a humble and repentant heart. 
And it would seem that God went out of his way here again and again and again in these Old Testament verses to say, you don't desire sacrifice, okay? And it's, um, but what God really wants is that we are listen, that we listen, we're obedient, we care for the outcasts in society, and that comes out so strongly uh, here in these verses. Well, then what is the purpose? Uh, I'm going to read this uh, extended quote. It's from a book called uh, Education, written well over 100 years ago. I know some of you are familiar with it, uh, which I think is a, a really a good, it's one viewpoint that, that I like about this system. Here at Mount Sinai, by the manifestation of his glory, God sought to impress Israel with the holiness of his character and requirements and the exceeding guilt of transgression. Again, the, the two sides there. But the people were slow to learn the lesson. Accustomed as they had been in Egypt to material representations of the deity, and these of the most degrading nature. When we get to the book of uh, Judges, we'll talk about some of the false gods. It was difficult for them to conceive of the existence or the character of the unseen one. In pity for their weakness, God gave them a symbol of his presence. He gave them a symbol of his presence. Let them make me a sanctuary, he said, that I may dwell among them. Through Christ was to be fulfilled the purpose of which the tabernacle was a symbol. That glorious building, its walls of glistening gold reflecting rainbow hues, the curtains inwrought with cherubim, the fragrance of incense pervading all the priests robed in spotless white, and in the deep mystery of the inner place above the mercy seat between the figures of the bowed worshiping angels, the glory of the holiest. Now notice, in all God desired his people to read his purpose for the human soul. Could we say mind? Thus in labor and in giving they were taught to cooperate with God and with one another, and they were to cooperate also in the preparation of the spiritual building, God's temple in the soul. Okay, so there would seem to be, and this is New Testament, a spiritual application to this physical building. And um, so this is so uh, redundant, this concept, this, this model here that God gave, very simple, Okay, has quite spectacular meanings for us in terms of a spiritual nature. So we have lots of physical temples in the Old Testament. Of course, the one in the wilderness, Solomon's temple, Ezekiel's temple, which was never built, Herod's temple, of course, which Jesus occupied, and uh, then spiritual temples. Okay, Jesus, remember when he said, tear down this temple, in three days I'll build it again, and they were all confused. I mean, how could you rebuild this? It took so many years. But notice, the temple he was speaking about was his body. Okay, so Jesus' body was a temple, and we also are a temple. And it's, it's quite, just, I find it amazing how many times, this is again and again and again, what does it mean that our body is a temple? In 1 Peter 2.5, come to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He's the cornerstone of the temple. He was rejected by the people, but he's precious to God who chose him. And now God is building you as living stones into his spiritual temple. Okay, what does it mean to be part of a spiritual temple? In Revelation 3, we read that we are pillars in the temple. So we're stones in the temple. We're pillars in the temple. In Ephesians 2, you too are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone, again, being Christ Jesus himself. He is the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. In union with him, you too are being built together with all the others into a place where God lives through his spirit. 
1 Corinthians 3.17, surely you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple for God's temple is holy and you yourselves are his temple. Okay, do you feel like a temple? What does it mean to be a temple? Okay, a few chapters later, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Okay, in 2 Corinthians, we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will make my home with my people and live among them. I will be their God, they'll be my people. And in Hebrews, we are his house or we are his temple. So all of these references again and again and again, we are the temple, we're the temple. Okay, what does that mean? Um, how it's often been uh, described to me is that, uh, well, better watch your diet, okay? Not too much cheese because, uh, you know, we are the temple. And I think there is an important uh, health message, okay? But uh, is that really what it means to be the temple? Let's give some examples here. What part of our body is the temple? What would you nominate as uh, which uh, organ, which limb is the temple? Let's say you have a patient here who's had a, a finger partially amputated. Okay, is part of the temple gone at that point? I'm just trying to, you know, think about this. What about a patient who has a heart transplant? Okay, are they no longer a temple? This uh, really struck home with me. I don't know how well you can see this, but um, several years ago, I saw a patient who was in a rodeo accident. had a very high cervical cord injury was paralyzed from the neck down, um, couldn't swallow, had to have a feeding tube for nutrition. And, um, you know, as I was thinking about it, uh, I couldn't give him a bit of advice about nutrition or exercise. Um, is this patient not a temple? Do we tell him, oh, none of those verses refer to you because uh, we can't talk about diet and exercise and all of that. Okay, where is the temple? Isn't the temple ultimately the mind? <laughs> Okay, maybe I'm, as a neurologist here, I want to see it that way. But um, no, what part of the body do you respond to God? Do you decide of your own free will choice for or against God? What part of your body do you communicate with God? Uh, for the first year students, we talked about how when we talk about the heart, that it keeps getting moved up. Um, the, the splankna is often used in the Old Testament to refer to what we call the heart. And of course, it moves up to the heart. Well, now, at least in terms of what's going on in the brain, probably the cingulate gyrus is about as accurate as we can be to say, when we say the heart, this is the part of the brain that is involved in, in those kinds of uh, emotions and so on. So would not the mind be ultimately uh, the temple? Now, if you don't take care of your body, okay, if you're drunk every day and do all kinds of things, then your mind's not gonna function very well. So obviously, what we do with our body and our diet and exercise is important. Okay, but supremely, wouldn't we say the mind is all important in terms of a temple? Well, we're going to come back to this next week, this whole concept here of the cleansing of the temple. And this is from Le Leviticus 16. Okay, and so uh, maybe we won't read through this for now, but it's describing here in this whole chapter what goes on with the cleansing of the temple. What I find interesting, though, is who is cleansed? On that day, the ritual is to be performed to purify them, talking about the people from all their sins, so that they, the people, will be ritually clean. Okay, and it goes on and perform the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence, the altar, the priests, and all the people of the community. 
These regulations are to be observed for all time to come. This ritual must be purified, uh, performed once a year to purify the people. Okay, so if we think about this uh, uh, prophecy in Daniel about a cleansing of the temple, I mean, is, is there a dirty building in heaven? Or is this not perhaps referring to uh, perhaps something that is going on in the minds of God's friends, a purification, something like that? Well, in the book of Hebrews, here it gets back to this, and I, and I, I think makes this point quite well. Hebrews 9.9, 9. the amplified version, anytime you quote from there, it amplifies. So you get lots and lots of added uh, possibilities here. But this is a stimulating verse in that scene that the first tabernacle was a parable or a visible symbol or a type or a picture of the present age. In it, gifts and sacrifices are offered and yet are incapable of perfecting the conscience or of cleansing and renewing the inner man of the worshiper. Isn't that describing something that's going on in the mind? Okay, and a few verses later, but how much more will the blood of Christ make our consciences clean from dead human efforts so that we can worship the living God? Okay, this is describing that's something that's going on uh, very important on the inside. Well, as we try to uh, understand this, um, fortunately the Bible <clears throat> gives us so many of these um, uh, interpretations or uh, symbols, very clear the meaning. Obviously Jesus here represents the lamb. Jesus represents the high priest. Jesus referred to himself as the manna that came down from heaven. Remember the manna was in um, the covenant uh, box there in the most holy place. Uh, we are referred to again and again as the uh, daily priests. The lid over the covenant box we'll talk about in Hebrews and in Romans. Jesus is the lid also. Of course we have the Shekinah glory representing the Godhead. Uh, we have curtains, and God's, or Christ's body is described as the way through the curtain. And then we have oil, fire, and water, things that are typically associated with the Holy Spirit. So um, lots of these things are kind of bringing us back to this system and saying, well, what is the meaning? <clears throat> of course, one thing we have to talk about is blood. And I think I mentioned this um, to you perhaps at the beginning of the Bible study, but what is the meaning of uh, blood, or is there a meaning uh, to blood? I had a student years ago who asked if we were saved by neutrophils or platelets. And uh, he was a skeptical because he wasn't, all he knew is that I had a Bible study, okay, but he was kind of uh, teasing me a little bit about that. But it's a good question. Uh, what, what is it about blood? Well, let's go back and uh, very, uh, I think, a telling verse here about blood. Here's Jesus' description, one of them, about the blood, where he would say, I can guarantee this truth if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have the source of life in you. Remember what a hard saying this was for the people. They said, who can understand this? Eat his flesh, drink his blood? And then he would say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Okay, it'd be pretty important we understand this then. And I will bring them back to life on the last day. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Okay, obviously, he's not talking about cannibalism here. There's a meaning to eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Okay, what is the meaning? Well, he would go on here, right here in John chapter 6 to say, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me. Now notice, what does it mean to eat the flesh, drink the blood? They live in me and I live in them. In the same way, whoever eats me will live because of me. <clears throat> now, so we eat the flesh, we drink the blood of Jesus, we have eternal life. Okay, well, um, again, a few verses later on in the same chapter, John 6, 
he would say what gives life is God's spirit. Human power of, is of no use at all. Notice the words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving spirit. Okay, God became the word. Word became flesh and there is something about ingesting that. And wouldn't this be like when you drink something, you eat something, it becomes a part of your whole body. It's assimilated throughout you. And uh, so when Jesus would say here, the night before he went out to be crucified, this is eternal life, which we just said is to eat his flesh, drink his blood. Okay, could this be here in clear words? This is eternal life, to know you. Okay, we've talked about the significance of the words to know. Adam knew Eve and they had a son. Okay, it was an intimacy, a relationship. And um, in John 17, he would say, I've fulfilled your mission, I've revealed your character. Why did he come to reveal God's character that we know him, that we are back in that relationship with him? So as I understand it, and there's obviously much, much more that should be said about this, the, there was real, physical, literal blood of Jesus that was spilled on the cross, okay, but we should not merely associate the blood with the death. God became a flesh and blood human being. I mean, that's incredible. Spent nine months in the womb. And he came to reveal the truth about God, his character, his principles, okay? And when we internalize everything about God is revealed by Jesus, that becomes uh, a part of us. Now, we could say, let's go back when Jesus was a baby here. Remember the command. The angels rushed um, to say, Herod's looking for the child. Rush, get him off to Egypt. Okay, um, what's, if all that was needed, as I heard Mel Gibson describe, all God needed was one drop of blood. Okay, if that was all that was needed, that blood could have been spilled uh, when Jesus was a baby. Okay, we need to associate the blood with the life also. God became a flesh and blood human being. And everything about the words of Jesus is life and the death, which was the culmination of his life, is critically important. Okay, Jesus didn't just come to die, he came to live, he came to teach, he came to tell us things and we're to internalize all of that. So if we take the meaning of that blood back to the sanctuary system, uh, I think we learn some important things. First of all, blood always cleanses, it never defiles. In Hebrews 9.22, as Moses' teachings tell us, blood was used to cleanse almost everything. Okay, and words here, I'll quote them from the King James. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we're talking about the Old Testament system here, but you know, in, in medicine we talk about remission. As a patient I saw uh, recently, quite uh, amazing, a malignant brain tumor, okay, but he's been in remission for eight years. What does that mean to be in remission? Well, he's cancer-free, okay, he's, he's healed. Now, the cancer might return, Okay, but the cancer has gone into uh, remission. Okay, we're not talking about uh, some sort of a, a legal pardon or something like that. Okay, and without God becoming flesh and blood, without his death, our sinful, rebellious heart does not go into remission. Okay, so I think we could, we could understand verses uh, in that way, but let's go through the tabernacle system and see if this makes sense. So we have three sections, an outer court, a holy place, a most holy place, and uh, what I'd like to propose is, I think, uh, an interesting way of looking at this is that these three altars, the brazen altar, the altar in the holy place, and in the most holy place, uh, represent, remember, we want to be in the most holy place. They represent different stages of the human mind in response to God. The brazen altar, made of bronze, not gold, 
Okay, I'd like to just consider, I'll try to make a case for this over the next 15, 20 minutes, that this brazen altar in the outer court uh, represents the unconverted mind, yet willing to listen. The golden altar made of gold in the holy place represents the converted mind, and then we have the covenant box, okay, which we'll talk about next time, in the most holy place, and there we are united to God, the Shekinah glory, the sealed mind, settled into the truth about God his character and principles. Okay, let's see if this works. So here's the brazen altar, the golden altar, and the Ark of the Covenant here in the most holy place. <clears throat> so here's what happened. Okay, as a man would come, uh, usually the head of the household that would bring a perfect lamb for sin. Okay, lamb had to be spotless. Okay, that same man killed the sheep, the blood was drained. Okay, and the blood was placed on the horns of the brazen altar. Okay, the lamb was then placed by the priest on the brazen altar. Okay, so here comes a man in to sacrifice the animal, and then uh, the internal organs were burned up here at the brazen altar. Okay, and notice here these uh, large horns on the brazen altar where the blood was placed. Okay, so uh, again, what appeals to me here is that uh, ultimately this represents uh, the death of Jesus. We talked last time about this ultimate of agape, other-centered love revealed at the cross, revealed through Moses, we talked about last week, revealed by Stephen, Paul. Anytime that true uh, other-centered love is revealed, uh, that is that love that awakens love within us. So I think this is being described here at the brazen altar. We have this uh, incredible self-sacrificial love of God ultimately revealed at the cross, and we become converted by that. So the lamb is Christ, the horns of the altar, what are horns usually represent in the Bible? Horns are usually a symbol of pride, selfishness. So many times in Daniel, that blood is placed on the horns. And if you look at those horns as we go to the golden altar and so on, they get smaller. Find that interesting. Fire here is burned up. Fire so many times represented by the Holy Spirit. Would this be the convicting power of the Holy Spirit on us? The organs, perhaps, represent the inner, the old man of selfishness being burned up, transformed in character. And uh, perhaps what might make this believable is what's the next thing that happens? We go from the brazen altar to the laver here where the priest would wash his hands. Okay, what happens when you're converted? Okay, baptism. Okay, so we go from the brazen altar to the laver. Okay, and we read that the priests would wash there at the laver. Okay, and so the, the man who brought the sheep then would follow the priest by faith as the priest entered the uh, holy place. So again, when you're converted, what happens? There's baptism to indicate spiritual birth. Okay, the person is now converted. They're now a believer. Okay, of course, Jesus was baptized upon uh, beginning his ministry. And Jesus would say that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Okay, a person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Okay, so uh, as we are converted, transformed, there's a baptism which represents a spiritual rebirth. Okay, and then what happens? We enter here into the holy place. And these three articles of furniture here in the holy place uh, represent uh, the essential elements, really, of the life of a Christian. Okay, let's go through this. First of all, we have to go through a veil to get there, and uh, veils are always bad. We want to get through the veils. The veils are in our way. Okay, so 
Uh, we want to come through those veils. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would talk about the veils this way. Their minds became closed. In fact, to this day, the same veil is still there when they read the Old Testament. It isn't removed because only Christ can remove it. Yet even today, when they read the books of Moses, a veil covers their minds. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So just the point for now is we are meant to go through those veils. Okay, we don't want anything separating us from God. So we enter the veil, we're into the holy place. And again, these three objects, and they're defined for us in the Bible. These are the essential elements of a Christian life. So we have the table with showbread, okay, which I'll try to make the point here is nourishment in the Word of God. We have the lampstand, which is defined for us as we are a witness to the world. And then the golden altar with incense, which is our prayerful communion with God. Okay, so first let's talk about the table with showbread. First of all, this was made by the priests. Okay, it wasn't the Bible written by men who were inspired by God. This was made by the priests, was eaten on the Sabbath day by the priests. We'll contrast this with the manna. Jesus, in the most holy place, Jesus said, I am the manna that came down from heaven. Okay, here we have the bread, made by the priests, eaten by the priests, uh, which I think represents the word of God. Okay, in Deuteronomy 8, Jesus quoted this in the wilderness, where he said, the Lord was teaching you that people need more than food to live on. They need every word that the Lord has spoken. So as part of the Christian life, we are to take in the word of God. And again, that assimilates, becomes a part of us, has a transforming effect in our life. Okay, so the Word of God, when internalized, also becomes a part of the person and results in a change of character. Okay, so that, that essential element has to be there in our life with God. Okay, we have the, the candlestick. Okay, what does that represent? Well, again, we're, we're, kind of, we're given these definitions. But uh, first of all, I think it's interesting in the descriptions here of the candlestick that uh, about the buds, the branches, the lampstand, made of a single piece of pure ham hammered gold, make seven lamps for the lampstand, and notice, set them up so that they shine toward the front. Why would those lamps be turned so they shine toward the front? Well, I think here the ultimate application is this is to be a witness. It shines outside of the holy place as a light to be a witness to others. So when Jesus would say, you are like a lamp for the whole world, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on a lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do. And notice, and praise your Father in heaven. Okay, so in so much as we reflect God's character, okay, people don't come back and, and look at us. Ultimately, they see what God is like when he is able to uh, manifest his character in our lives. And I mentioned in Revelation that specifically as Jesus is walking among the lampstands, okay, walking among those seven lampstands, it's important that then it goes on to describe the churches. Okay, so the lampstand is the church, and by that not uh, a specific denomination or a building, okay, but really all those people who are God's friends, who represent him. Okay, it's again, it's repeated so many times here in Numbers. Tell Aaron that when he puts the seven lamps on the lampstand, he should place them so the light shines toward the front. Again, as a witness to others. Okay, so our, our life as a Christian is one where we don't just take in. Okay, reading the Bible is important, but it has to, of necessity, has to in some way manifest in the way we treat people, 
the way we talk about God to other people. Okay, so that's the lampstand. Um, now, it's interesting here that the lampstand is so ornate with buds, flowers, and almonds, and I like to think that this represents a Christ-like character. We talk about the fruits of the Spirit, okay, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control, that this lampstand with all these fruits and buds and almonds uh, represents a Christ-like character reflected to the world. Now, what was in the lampstand? What burns? Well, it's oil. And uh, oil is uh, representative of the, of the Holy Spirit. Of course, in Old Testament times, if you were anointed by oil, poured the oil over your head, okay? But then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus like a dove. So the oil here represents the Holy Spirit. And um, uh, sometime we'll go into the function of the Holy Spirit, but in these passages here in John 14, Jesus was so repetitive. Here's the purpose, here's the function of the Holy Spirit, where he would say, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Who reveals the truth about God? Okay, and in John 15, the helper will come, the Spirit. What does he do? Who reveals the truth about God and who comes from the Father? I will send him to you from the Father and he will speak about me. So the Holy Spirit ultimately tells us about Jesus what does Jesus tell us? Jesus tells us about the character of God. So the function of the Holy Spirit is to bring all of these things uh, to our minds about who God is. And again, in John 16, when, however, the Spirit comes, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? So if we are filled with the Spirit, here is this lampstand trying to re represent God as a light to the world. Okay, what burns the fire is uh, the, our picture of God, our description of who God is. Okay, so we have the table of showbread, we have the lampstand here. I don't know, several years ago they brought a replica of the tabernacle here to Loma Linda. It was interesting, you could walk through all of this. So this is just a picture of it. And then we have here the altar of incense. What does that represent? Well, incense is many times in the Bible described as prayer. Here in Psalm uh, 141, I pray to you, Lord, please listen when I pray and hurry to help me. Think of my prayer as sweet-smelling incense, and think of my lifted hands as an evening sacrifice. Okay, so prayer is incense. Wouldn't that absolutely need to be a part of our Christian experience? And so in Exodus, the description here of the incense here on the covenant box is that the offering of incense is to continue without interruption or without ceasing for all time to come. Okay, now what did Paul say about prayer? Be joyful always, pray at all times, or pray without ceasing. Okay, now, if we're on our knees all the time, our Christian experience ends. Okay, that's not what it means. It means to prayerfully be connected to God, moment by moment, okay, throughout our life. So, I, I think the altar here with the incense, which would go into the most holy place, okay, represents a people who are joyously in communication with God. Okay, and I like this application, that like the, the light that is to be a witness to the world, so is the incense. God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. 
But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. So as the incense would uh, go out of the holy place and uh, be diffused, uh, in the same way, our life is to be a representation of, of who God is. Okay, and maybe I'll just finish on this point, and next time we'll talk about the most holy place. That's, that's the best part. But um, that this veil here between the holy and most holy place, it did not extend to the top. Okay, well, maybe next time we'll talk about that. But we want to get through every veil. We are meant to be united to God. And I think it is very significant here that at the death of Jesus, that the curtain between the holy and the most holy place was ripped, top to bottom. Now, I think that does mean, of course, that this was the end of the sacrificial system. Okay, but I think uh, perhaps even more important here, there's, there's a meaning. Uh, at the death of Jesus on the cross, I think the clearest revelation of who our God is, the clearest revelation of his character, and it's almost as if that curtain is ripped and we can see into the most holy place and say that is what our God is like. Father, I pray for each one here that uh, we would take these things seriously, try to put the Bible together with um, your Holy Spirit um, acting in us, that uh, you would lead us to a closer understanding of who you are, and uh, that we would be like that lampstand in the world that uh, would reflect your character, character to all those around us. Amen.